You know, our lives do go by very, very rapidly. Now, there's a sweet little baby back here I was watching with her bottle a moment ago. Doesn't know that she is an American. Doesn't know that she is a Texan. Doesn't know that she is free. Does not have the faintest conception. She could be a little baby right now in a flap, hopefully untouched by the earthquake somewhere in Mexico City, with a stench of death all around her, with fires still burning from ruptured gas lines, electrical power completely out, surface water being polluted, millions of people running around like an anthill has been kicked over, witnessing total devastation. And she could be living in abject poverty, but it wouldn't make any difference as long as mom was nursing her or she had her bottle. She would be oblivious. She could be a little child being nursed by a mother in Azerbaijan or maybe in the mountains of uh, Afghanistan or in Central America or anywhere else. I first began to learn who and what I was as a little boy before I went to school. My mom began to show me there are certain things that little boys must do and certain things that are unacceptable, unacceptable social behavior. Mothers teach girls. Mothers and fathers teach boys and girls what is acceptable behavior, how to behave ourselves, how not to injure someone else. No, you don't reach out and take that toy because that's not yours. That's hers or that's his. And that's their property, so you don't touch that. When you get into school, you learn a little more about this. You start learning about the state and about the nation. Oregon happened to have a very strong and a very good school system when I went into the school system in 1936. And I began to learn about Dr. McLaughlin and about all the clickatats and the Indians that the chief was Multnomah, which was the name of the county of Portland, Oregon, where I was born. I learned about John Jacob Astor and how Astoria got its name and about the American Fur Com uh, Company and their conflict with the Hudson's Bay Company up in British Columbia and how America and Canada finally settled on the line that is now the friendliest, the longest, and the most unguarded border on the face of the earth. I began to learn about the Indians and we would draw maps about the Oregon Indians. There were a couple of Indian reservations not far away from me. And I learned more about the nation. I remember them teaching me in about the first grade. I pledge allegiance to the flag. And then I get the words wrong. And the teacher would rehearse it and rehearse it to the United States of America. And I didn't know what that was yet. But I was learning. So little by little, they taught me to read the dial of a clock. They taught me about numbers. And they taught me the letters of the alphabet. And how to read. See Jane run. See the dog. See the boy. See the girl run. And I began to read as I learned to read more and more, and I finally learned about a library and about something called a Dewey Decimal System. And then they taught me about certain books that had to do with the founding of our nation, and I learned about John Adams. His middle name was Quincy, remember? Jefferson and Washington. I learned about the Declaration of Independence in original colonies and the pilgrims that landed at Plymouth. Began to realize a lot of things, half of which was basically oft-repeated fable, I think, uh, like Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. Uh, some things we learned later on weren't quite the way we have told it, almost cultically, to instill in us the feeling that we have toward the United States. But eventually they instilled in me a feeling of patriotism, of gratitude that I was in Oregon. They taught me some of the state songs about the Oregon Trail, and they taught me the national songs and hymns like the National Anthem and God Bless America, and some of them that I didn't realize had been borrowed from our motherland of England, 
and uh, which they sing, you know, as, as their national anthem, and we sing just as one of our patriotic songs. And finally there came the time when as a young teenager, I realized, well, I wasn't a teen yet, that we were at war with other nations which were going to take away all these freedoms and privileges, and they were barbarians. They didn't believe in the freedoms and privileges we did. They believed in complete autocracy or an oligarchy. They believed in Japan and the divinity of a man who allegedly descended from the sun and was a member of the sun god's family. And they believed over in Germany and Italy in a religious cult that masqueraded as a political system called the Third Reich under Adolf Hitler, who was sort of like a pseudo-Christ and who actually caused people to worship him. As we can read very clearly in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation, they worshiped the dragon and they worshiped the beast that gave power to the dragon and to this great beast that had been constructed, which is just like a Gentile world-ruling system. I remember learning a lot of geography and history during the days of World War II, those dark days from December 7th, 1941 until about March, April of 1942, when every time I picked up a newspaper or listened to a radio broadcast as a boy of 11 and 12, the United States had another big setback. The Prince of Wales and the Repulse, two of the proudest brand new battleships in a British fleet went down off the uh, peninsula, the Malaysian peninsula over there. Uh, we learned about one little uh, thing that was helpful. Uh, Doolittle's planes made it safely over Tokyo. Most all of them, of course, well, all of them crashed. A lot of the crew were murdered, some of them interned in Russia, some of them got back from China, but at least it was a, a sort of a euphoric feeling for a moment of seeing a picture of a B-52 and bombs dropping out of it with a big headline, Tokyo Lullaby, question mark. That's the way the Eugene Register Guard decided to treat that news. It got to where, as a boy at 13 and 14, sitting in darkened movie theaters in Eugene, Oregon, where I paid 11 cents after collecting bottles along the side of the road to go to the movie, that when Franklin Delano Roosevelt's picture would come on the screen, everybody in the theater would leap to their feet, and there would be a rousing cheer, and we would applaud till our hands hurt. Every time the American flag was shown, whipping on the jack staff of a ship or whatever, we applauded. Every motion picture theater began and closed with the lights on and people standing up and the national anthem being sung. I learned my patriotism during a war that instilled patriotism very, very deeply in me. One of the proudest moments of my life was the day when after I had been for two years in the Navy aboard, they, they say aboard even though you're on land, a naval air station. I was finally assigned to a big aircraft carrier, three city blocks long, 3,000 men aboard, five squadrons of aircraft, and thankfully I was assigned to the fire control, which meant the gun aiming devices not putting out fires division, the Fox division, which was the instrument division that had control over the gun directors of that ship, so that my battle station would have been clear up on what was called A1 below the barbette, the gun director, right way above the bridge. So when I was in my fatigues and I was up there and we were underway, I was up with a wind in my face seeing everything that was going on. And after we'd been out there and calibrated the compass, and we'd been sitting out in the middle to take on our ammunition and bombs with a red flag flying for a couple of days, and finally we were going out for our first sea trial, and we were underway. For the first time I felt that ship move after we'd taken it out of mothballs under its own power instead of with tugs that towed it out to the middle of the stream there and 
had it all, of course, they put hawses on it to get it lined exactly a certain way to calibrate the compass, which takes a lot of hours to make sure it's exactly accurate. But finally, when that ship began to move, and everybody was in their dress blues, I think, on this occasion, as I recall, and have a picture of it, and we started moving, and here was this great big monster of an Essex-class aircraft carrier sailing beneath the Bay Bridge and then the Golden State Bridge with traffic going by looking down almost looked as if our radar antenna that was already turning was going to scrape the bottom of the bridge and everybody lined up at attention and that ship slowly moving I thought my heart would absolutely come out of my chest I've never been so proud in my life that flag flying and I was standing on a platform capable of sinking dozens of ships a platform with F-9F Panther jets lined up on the deck with those big Sky Raiders, a single-engine 3,000-plus horsepower engine that carried a bigger bomb load as a single-engine aircraft than a B-17E did during World War II. And we represented a lot of power, a lot of might, a lot of armament, a lot of bombs, and I was proud. The next proudest moment, even a more, I think, uh, exciting moment for me was a few weeks later, after we'd taken a squadron of aircraft over and delivered them to the Air Force over in Honolulu and come back to San Diego and underwent our UTE, and then we went over to Korea. And after eight days en route for Japan, a quick stop at Yokosuka, we went through the Bungo Strait and over to the South China Sea and the Yellow Sea and ended up off Wonsan Harbor. And on one gray, misty morning, the, cap the captain said, Everybody that gets a chance wants to come topside to take a look. We have joined elements of the 7th United States Fleet. And, of course, I went up there immediately because I was just one deck below on the O-1 level beneath the flight deck. And here in the distance were the, New, the uh, New Jersey and the Iowa, two huge battleships, two other aircraft carriers, the Bonham Richard and the Essex. And then there were something like seven cruisers and about six or seven light cruisers, over 30 destroyers, and they were so far away from us they were completely over the horizon. You see little dots as far as the eye could see. And the entire U.S. 7th Fleet was steaming along there, and I was part of it. And again, I thought my heart would burst. That feeling of being a part of something great that was going on, and the idea that we were over there to crush that enemy. Well, there were years then of frustration as I began to learn that the entire exercise of sending all of those men over there to Korea had been for absolutely nothing that the politicians in Washington had decided that America was going to fight a war for the first time where there was no front and no rear. A war fighting over a line artificially drawn by cartographers that recognized no confluence of rivers, no major mountain chains, no strategic bays, estuaries, major cities, or military targets of any sort. That we were not there necessarily to acquire land we were there to lean on an enemy and bring him to the conference table. And we were there fighting with one arm tied behind us because the enemy was granted safe sanctuary across the Yalu River. Our aircraft could bomb the Yalu bridges sideways. The best way to hit a bridge is go right along the way the bridge spans the gap. But our aircraft had to go this way because they couldn't fly across out of the border. And on the border of Manchuria were thousands of anti-aircraft guns. And so everybody that tried to bomb those bridges was in danger of losing his life, as many of them did. They had safe sanctuary, and so our aircraft were busy bombing tunnels and deserted railways and little hamlets and villages, and once in a while a troop movement or some trucks that they might find, but the enemy moved mostly at night. 
And it's rather dangerous landing on an aircraft carrier. It can be done. They had night harassment missions, but it's rather dangerous landing some of the uh, landing jets, especially on an airplane uh, uh, heaving deck out there at sea on an aircraft carrier at night with very dimly lit flight deck, which looks like a postage stamp from 5,000 feet. So, as I learned that the United States Seventh Fleet had been largely ineffective, done very, very little to really affect the course of the war, and that the United States for many, many years had committed troops piecemeal in full view of the troops fighting for their lives atop one hill were other troops sitting there enjoying, as they say, ghee dunk or ice cream taking time out. If the troops on the one hill, like the Battle of Bloody Ridge or Bunker Hill or some of the other pork chop hills, some of the infamous places in Korea where thousands of American lives were lost, if they were thrown off a hill, the idea was, let's go get it back. And this all during which there were talks going on at Panmunjom, and allegedly we were trying to negotiate for peace. Well, by the time I was out of the Navy in 1952, I was a little bit more grown up than I had been back there at age 20 when I first went underneath the Golden State Bridge and my heart about to burst with pride because I was part of a monstrous, massive war machine. In the years that have gone on since then, I've learned a great deal more about it. I've learned about Yalta and Potsdam, and I've learned about World War II and how near a thing it was, and also why it is that all of Eastern Europe was swallowed up by the Soviet Union and why it is that the armies of Eisenhower turned south to try to capture the redoubt where Hitler was in Bavaria, or where the bulk of the German army was supposed to flee. Hitler then ended up in the bunker, of course, but spent a lot of the time at Berchtesgaden, and they were going to turn to the south and capture Bavaria and leave Berlin to the Russians to capture. So as historians have reconstructed all that went on during that day, it was quite enlightening to realize that a lot of my feelings at that time though honest and appropriate, and certainly the way I had been taught and brought up, basically been betrayed. That the United States, for two times in its history, had gone into battle where its troops were committed piecemeal, both there and in Vietnam, and where there was no goal to conquer an enemy, to bomb his bases of supply, and to actually win the war. Now, we know that, and I won't take further time with it. It is only to say that there are two kinds of cults in the world. There is political cultism, and there is spiritual cultism. And actually, the two are very, very similar, very, very close together. If you'll turn to Matthew 10, verse 17 for a moment, I want to show you just a few quick scriptures. Matthew 10:17. Jesus said that we are not to be afraid. He said that over and over again. And yet there are millions and millions of people who live in fear today. Here in the book of Matthew, in verse 17 of the 10th chapter, Beware of men, he tells his disciples who are sent into the world to preach the gospel, for they will deliver you up to the councils, to their form of government, to their committees. And they will scourge you right inside their churches, right inside a synagogue a church or a synagogue, which is a haven of rest, a place of prayer, a place of quiet meditation, a place of forgiveness, a building that signifies reconciliation and hope and peace and justice. And right inside that building, they'll lash your back until it is a bloody froth. And you will be brought, read, dragged in manacles and chains before governors and kings for my sake 
for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Now, going along, looking at some of the verses here, he says in verse 28, Fear not them which kill the body. Greek word, soma. But are not able to kill the suke. Greek word, meaning your life. Not soul. Soul is translated life. Should be translated life. Transliterated into the English language. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body, both suke and soma, both your life, the spirit life that is inside of you, the spirit that is in man, and your body in Gehenna fire. It says, don't fear any man. Now, a collection of men is just man, but just more of them. Who do you fear today? Who do you fear? Fear not them which kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna fire. He said in verse 31, Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. He talks about how God understands every seas, every little bird that falls. You're of more value than a sparrow. A couple of other examples. John 14, uh, verse 1. Let's take a quick look at that. These, of course, the statements Jesus made just before he was crucified. Let not your heart be troubled. Verse 14. Don't be disturbed, apprehensive. Don't be fearful. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Why did he say that? Notice verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Now, God's church, God's people, are supposed to have inner peace. A feeling of tranquility, a feeling of hope, a feeling of expectancy toward the future, a feeling that everything's going to be all right, everything is going to work out well, there's no need to be frustrated or anxious because things are going to work out all right. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you, because you see, the peace of the world doesn't last. It's always artificial. It usually is not complete. And it doesn't last very long. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. In John 14, I said in verse 27, I read that one. Let's look at John 16 and verse 2. He said the time is going to come that they will put you out of the synagogues. They, the leaders of a religious or spiritual hierarchy, will kick you out of the church organization. Yea, the time comes that whoever murders you, puts you to death, will actually think he's doing God a service. He is ridding this pristine organization or this holy state or this great nation of a filthy piece of vermin that doesn't deserve to live. Of some would-be revolutionary. Whoever kills you will think that he does God a service. Now, what, what words? I mean, here is the time is going to come when you are going to be put out and the people that drag you and manacle you and drag you into the churches are going to actually think they're doing God a just and exalted service and say, thank you, Lord, as they plunge a knife into your heart. But he goes right on to say, right after saying this, in verse 33, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble, tribulation. You're going to have nothing but trouble in the world. But in me, you're going to have peace. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Romans 8, and in verse 16, oh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 14, 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, whereof or whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But we have received not a spirit of timorousness, not a spirit of apprehension, but a spirit of friendly, warm, contented, peaceful joy, a spirit that is a complete absence of fear, and therefore we are able to call our God Father. Take a look at the 13th chapter of Revelation. Revelation, the 13th chapter, we'll look at both the second and the first beast briefly. This first beast is pictured in verses 1 through 2, and of course, compiles all the strongest parts of the four beasts of Daniel 7, which is nothing more than the four successive world-ruling Gentile kingdoms culminating in the Roman Empire, which had many resurrections down through history, including a weak resurrection under Mussolini and Hitler, and one more resurrection of a Romish system, a modern Holy Roman Empire to come. He sees one of the heads wounded as it were to death, and the deadly wound is healed, verse 3, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, the word beast merely means a great industrial, socio-economic, military conglomerate of nations. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Now, no one knows that they are worshipping a dragon, or a rotten, filthy, ravening beast with a, you know, saliva dripping out of its mouth and fetid breath that looks like something ghastly out of the green swamp. And they don't knowingly or consciously worship the devil himself or a system of government that is established by the devil. But they say, who is like unto the beast? Absolutely unique. Nothing has ever been the like before. The greatest military system the world has ever seen. Who is able to make war with him? Now, taking you back to what I felt as a young lad growing up in Oregon, the feeling that I experienced was probably nowhere near so intense as those who had joined the Hitler Jugend at about the same time or earlier than I was going to grade school to learn about the American flag and to repeat I Pledge Allegiance. And those young boys marching with nothing more than sticks or maybe a shovel or a rake and learning how to click their jackboots and say Heil Hitler believed in everything they saw happening inside Germany where a nation that had been on the brink of starvation joblessness everywhere, people standing in line for the dole, riots in the streets, disorder, leftist, communist at every stripe, every political polarity, and there were dozens of them trying frantically to grab the reins of power. And out of it all emerged a bunch of bully boys, including some of the storm troopers, as they were called, who were uh, put together by Hitler even prior to the time that he wrote Mein Kampf in jail after the infamous putsch that he tried to pull off and to actually take the government away in Munich. And uh, Ernst Röhm, with whom he was affiliated, later on was betrayed by Hitler, and Röhm became one of the first men, the leaders of the Nazi movement, who was murdered by Hitler himself as Hitler continually changed loyalties. Uh, you weren't very safe if you were right next to Adolf Hitler. Do you, not, you understand the real reason why Rudolf Hess took off and did what he did? His wife goaded him into it. Rudolf Hess was falling out of favor. He saw that Martin Bormann was edging him out, yet he was one of the old party loyal, uh, loyals from the very first three or four people that surrounded Hitler back in the early 1933 and 34 period. So Hess decided he personally would try to pull off negotiation with Winston Churchill and the King of England and perhaps bring about some kind of an armistice or a peace. And he tried it without Hitler knowing anything about it and ended up in prison for the rest of his life where he still is to this very day. 
But if you can imagine the feeling, now I've seen these pictures, maybe some of you have, I've got one called Sieg Heil in there in my office. And it's actual pictures out of Germany, and it shows Hitler standing up in his Duesenberg or his, you know, beautiful, great, big, long, convertible limousine going through the throngs of some of the streets of Bavaria and big towns there. And there are women literally fainting as this man goes by. There are pictures of throngs of young, flaxen-haired German girls, their eyes almost protruding out of their heads, their mouths wide open, looking at this man as if God himself had just gone by. And here's a high peak cap and this funny-looking swastika, the armband, all the flags in a breeze. I'm saying that the feelings of patriotism, of gratitude that I was a boy from Oregon in the United States of America in the Navy wearing its uniform, were much more greatly intensified by Adolf Hitler because he knew how, through the use of slogans, and he wrote in the book Mein Kampf, make sure that your slogan is so simple that it appeals to and is understood by the lowest intellect of the masses, and then repeat it and repeat it endlessly until no one is ever able to forget it. He talked about how the spirits of the people are weak at night, and after they've been kept up for hours and harangued, that they will follow you in practically anything. And so as these people began to instill state worship in the minds of the German people, Hitler was able, in a very short period of time, you can go back and look at the maps of the world at that time, to gobble up virtually all of Europe, and almost, by such a very little split hair of difference, bring the United States of America and Britain to our knees, and occupy these great lands, and take away our freedom and our liberty. And we see here in the 13th chapter of Revelation, another beast in verse 11 coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns, like a lamb, so it appears Christ-like. It masquerades as Christ. And he spoke as a dragon, like Satan the devil. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. So even though this is a spiritual organization masquerading as Christ and is a false religious system, a religious, in this case, cult, it nevertheless has the power to utilize the military force of the state in gaining its objectives and which caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. You read of that in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians, that he will deceive all nations with the power to deceive people by great miracles, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And then goes the statement about those who are caused to receive a symbol of cooperation, a symbol of giving your head, your mind, your heart, and your hand. Your right hand, which is a symbol of your willingness not only to strike a bargain, but your willingness to work. And, of course, your whole volition and your will, symbolic of your forehead, the mark of the beast, or the number of the beast, or the name of his beast, any one of those three things, stamped indelibly in the hearts, minds, and hands of these individuals. So here is to arise in the world a coming political cult, which will be like a religious cult, a religious system. Now, we know the Jim Jones cult. We read about it with a feeling of revulsion. We heard of how Jim Jones managed through his own charisma, and he had it, and his own personality, and his speaking ability to gradually, subtly transfer the love of Christ and the love of God into the love and the awe and the respect of Jim Jones until eventually he was able to say, I spit on the Bible, and his people just sat there. 
Now they had taken that final step from which there was never any return. They had given their souls, if you will, their very spirits, into the hands of Jim Jones. Let's turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Acts right quickly. Here is a famous cultic. He became far more famous than a lot of us even know in history, and his statue very well may be today in St. Peter's in Rome. There is a black, almost Byzantine-looking sculpture there that is absolutely not Roman, and it is not Greek. It's called St. Peter's, and he may have been the great Pathor. And if you look into the origin of that word, and I will not dwell on it because it is not my purpose, you can look up the meaning of the word Baal, and you can find what Asherah were. Asherim is the singular. In other words, upright totems or obelisks. Then you will also find what was a pathor, and why it is in the Latin that that same word is pater, meaning father. Someone who was able to engender life. And then you'll find out why there were two different, well, there's a word used, and I won't go into that, in humor, sometimes slang, some people would probably call it a nasty word, for the male sex organ that actually uses the name of one of the apostles. Did you ever wonder why? Well, the Hebrew word pathor is why. There were two Peters back during that day. There was one who masqueraded as Simon Peter and who did go to Rome, and there was one who never saw Rome never set foot in it. He wrote from Babylon. His name was Simon Peter. Peter the Rock, as Christ called him. But there was one who masqueraded as Simon Peter, and he was called Simon as well. But he was called Simon the Pathor later on, or the Pater, or the Teacher. It says, as they were scattered abroad in verse 4, they went everywhere preaching the word, and Philip began to preach Christ to Samaria, and the people began to believe, and great miracles began to occur, and there was great joy, verse 8, but there was a certain man there called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. Now, if you give out that you're a great one, people are going to believe it. Believe me, I have seen time and time and time again that there's only one area in the world where a lot of adults, fools, malcontents, idiots, uh, dinglings, and weirdos that probably belong somewhere being given some psychiatric help can have their claim to greatness. And that's religion. They can't do it in the corporate structure. You can't march up to some educator and say, I am a prophet. You don't get anywhere. You can't go to government. You can't run for office. There's nowhere these creeps can have this feeling of greatness fulfilled. So if I have somebody walk up to me and tell me, I'm Jesus Christ, you know, I really don't have a lot of truck with people like that. I never have and I never will because I know what the real Jesus Christ is all about and I know that that kind of a person is trying to have his great moment. And there are fools out there to whom he could make that statement, and they will believe him. But I'm not a fool. I'm the wrong person for someone to come up and tell me, I'm John the Baptist, or I'm Elijah, or I'm Jesus Christ. Hasn't worked before. It'll never work. Didn't work the other day when I got a telephone call, and a man started telling me about some great directory he's going to issue to the nations. And I just said, I'm sorry, I'm tired of listening to you. Bang. That's the way I just finally decided I've got things on my desk that are more important than this. So I just hung up on him. Didn't want to mess with it anymore. But Simon got away with it, like a lot of people on television Television get away with it. You turn on Sunday morning television, there's one guy out there. A lot of them are saucy. They do it different ways. Some of them are happy. Some of them always cry, oh, it's so nice to know the Lord. And others are like this. There's a guy that's on there and everything's sort of snotty. 
the Lord. I, 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 see, I don't think I've ever even seen the guy say more than two or three words. Oh, talking about the Lord. He's like he wants to fight. You know who I'm talking about? His face almost is, is twisted all upside down. I don't think if that guy smiled that he could stand the reaction to his cheeks. He'd probably just paralyze his face. But how they get away with it? Well, Simon gave out that himself was some great one. Now, people can do that. And Simon did it. To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This is that power of God that is called great. This man has power. You know what that means usually? He's loud. He has power. Power! You know, I've got power! So they stand up in the pulpit and they shout at people. And people say, boy, that's, that's power. I like to take him over there and watch what I did when the astronauts went to the moon for the first time. When you see a Saturn rocket 36 stories tall, 7 million pounds of thrust one mile away take off, and it shakes the earth and jingles the chain in your pocket and almost makes you faint. It's, it's awesome. Now, that's power. Well, when you pour the coal to a jet engine, you're rolling down a runway. If you could do that in an F-15, hold the nose down, pull it straight up, and be to 55,000 feet in three minutes. That's power. But some sweaty evangelist up on the platform, hoarse-voiced fake, a ham actor, frustrated, screaming at people, that's power. But that's what these people thought it was. And to him they had regard, because of long time he'd bewitched them with sorceries. Now, you know, I've seen some fabulous magic in my time. And every bit of it is illusion. It's a trick. And I don't know how they do some of those tricks. It is puzzling to me. But you could learn how. Sometimes they'll show you just a simple trick and say, Oh, well, that's the way it's done. But they could show you even these great ones where this one guy has made everything from the Statue of Liberty to Learjet seemingly by the use of lights and so on, to disappear right before your eyes. Now, obviously it didn't disappear, but you thought it did. And so this man knew some of those secrets. The Magi, and he was one of the Magus, or the Magi. And the word magician comes from Magi. And the Magi were the Oriental or the Persian sages, seers, or prognosticators who were forced to come to the birth of Jesus Christ to acknowledge that he was king. But when they believed Philip, preaching things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, and Simon believed too. He believed the works, he believed the miracles, he believed that Philip was successful, and he was jealous, and he wanted a piece of the action. And he was baptized. Interesting. Interesting, isn't it? Now, later on, of course, skipping ahead a little bit, Simon saw in verse 18 that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, because, see, being a fake... Being a creepy, rotten fake, being a trickster, a magician, he assumed that they were too. But he hadn't figured out how they did it yet. So he wanted to get a piece of the action, and he offered the money because he, that's what he wanted. That's what he was in it for. So why not assume that Peter and the others needed, you know, the same kind of action? So they like they made a little money. He was just shocked when they turned him down. Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You don't have part nor lot, referring back to the lot that fell on Matthias, with us in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. So Peter dealt with his heart, with his innermost character and being, and notice what Simon says. Peter said, I perceive you're in a gall of bitterness and a bond of iniquity. Simon said, Pray the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken come upon me. Now, what that says is, Oh, how evil you are. 
What a rotten man you are to misunderstand my motives. Pray the Lord that none of these things that a guy like you would say that would come on sweet little old me will ever happen. He just felt sorry for himself. He didn't repent. He didn't say, well, you're right, Peter, I'm a fool. And I, I just uh, tried to buy the Spirit of God with money and I need to get my knees and repent. He just said, oh, and he began to feel sorry for himself. And so he asked Peter to pray that the Lord wouldn't cause these things to happen. Simon Magus became a leader and later a substitute apostle and actually may well be the individual whose bones are buried under the Vatican. Now, that's too long a story for me to go into today, but I believe that that is very greatly a likelihood. And so Simon Magus started his own religion. Back here in the book of Revelation, again into the 13th chapter, you have to ask, how can this happen? How did it happen? In this 13th chapter, when it says that they worship the dragon as well as worshiping the beast and worshiping a state system, and that then these little people are going to willingly receive, verse 16, a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man can live, he can't buy or sell, save he had that mark, which symbolizes his allegiance or the number of his name and so on, then the Bible says that we are to avoid that at all costs. Now, I've got to conclude quickly because I'm running out of time, but let me just ask in closing, whom do you fear? Before whom or what do you stand in awe? What creates in you the feeling I described I had as a young boy in my uniform going to sea on the USS Antietam? Who or what do you obey? To whom or what do you owe your fealty, your fidelity, your loyalty? To whom or what do you look for your protection? With whom or what have you pledged an allegiance? Whom or what would you fear to disobey or to disagree with or to perhaps even complain about? Whom or what or from what source would you fear retribution if you did? Who has charge over your life, your mind, your spirit, your salvation? And if there's any other answer to that, then Jesus Christ, you're wrong. If you can say Jesus Christ, fine. You have absolutely nothing to fear. But if there's any other answer, if there's an organization, a church, a physical state, or any other human being whose name would fit into any of those fears I talked about, then you may be guilty yourself of worshiping the dragon and worshiping the beast someday. <laughs>